So let's talk about this. Uh, just a little bit of a recap. The kingdom of God was breaking in. The Son of Man, he's come, and he's healing the sick, and he's, he's releasing people who have been oppressed by demons. And not only is Jesus able to give a paralytic new, new legs, but he can forgive them of their sins. And so the people are amazed by this Jesus, and the religious leaders are outraged, <laughs> right? And so Jesus, last week we see he was in a house. Man, they are just, you know, shoulder to shoulder, crammed in there. Remember the whole roof thing and everything else? Well, now they're getting out of the house. They're getting some fresh air. And this is where we pick up for today. It says, beginning in verse 13, he says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus has returned to the Sea of Galilee, right? And once again, we see these crowds gather. Jesus is teaching the good news. This is why he has come. Mark doesn't give us the response of the crowds because we never see anything positive from the crowds. But we do see this one person in this story. And what we find here really is a parallel of when you studied Mark chapter 1. I think Peyton was here at that particular time teaching in verses 16 through 20. And he called the four men. Remember that? Uh, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And there are similarities and you see these parallels in the Gospels at times. One of the parallels is Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. Same thing with them. The other thing is who Jesus called. He, he's not he calling on people who are outside their religious authorities. And so the first four men that he called were fishermen, right? This, this is blue-collar workers. And now he's, he's dealing with a white-collar worker, but they are completely different, completely opposite from the religious leaders of the day, and those are tax collectors. And then the other thing is, when he called these people, it, we don't find any other discussion. We don't hear him say, well, you know, well, what does that mean to follow you? Where are we going? He, he, they just get up and go. And, and it's just a really kind of kind of a cool thing. Now, here in our text, there is this guy. His name is Levi. You may know him as Matthew. All right? And you may say, oh, inconsistencies in the scripture, or maybe not you. Some people will say that. No, it was not uncommon for people to have different names. Uh, what about Peter? What were some of his other names? Simon. Joseph, uh, not Josephus, Cephas. Uh, yeah, Josephus, he was a country music guy. Uh, but yeah, so we, so we got Levi and Matthew. And, and remember, these different audiences, you know, you got Greek-speaking people, and you had, you had their their Hebrew names and so forth, and so this is why you you would find these types of um, find these types of things. But one of the really interesting things about Levi is what? Who is this guy? A tax collector. Somebody tell me what a tax collector was. And don't say they collected taxes. <laughs> Who are these people? Thieves. 
What else? How else would you describe tax collectors in that day and time? Jews hated them. Shysters. Those are all really <laughs> pretty good descriptions of them. Now, the reason Matthew or Levi is here is because Capernaum was on, it was a border town. So here's Capernaum, and this is kind of the border. I mean, it's, it's border to this place called Galantis. And, and so anytime you crossed over borders, there were tolls to be paid, okay? And it's hard for us to understand. It's like, well, isn't this all the same group, right? Isn't this all the same people? But these were different provinces. Now, you've heard of Herod the Great, right? Well, his sons were not so great. <laughs> and so instead of when he dies in 4 BC, giving one of the sons all the, the territory, then they end up giving them, uh, dividing it into three. Now, this is Herod Antipas. This is probably who, um, this is probably who Levi worked for. And the reason is here, Judah, the south, this was given to Archelaus. Um, and then we have Herod Antipas. He is given Galilee and portions of the Jordan Valley. And then we see uh, um, uh, Herod Philip. He is given what's known as the, the Golan Heights and on into Syria. Okay? So here you see where this border is from, from Antipas to Philip. So you crossed over, and this is the way it worked. Now, here you're already learning one of the reasons the people hated these tax collectors. And, and the reason is they're having to pay taxes. And a lot of these people who were around at this time, they remembered a time when you didn't have to pay taxes. You didn't have to, when you went from, you know, Galilee over into this area of Galantis, you didn't have to pay taxes. But now because this, everything is set up the way it is. What, what is the other reason they didn't like um, Tax collectors. What is it about them? First of all, who is the tax for? It's for the Roman government. What was the Roman government to Jews? Yeah, this was, this was, these were the people who had oppressed them. These are the people who are in charge of them. This is not their nation of people. In fact, they saw Gentiles. You know how they thought of Gentiles. And now Gentiles are in charge of them. And they're having to pay money to Gentiles. And they did not appreciate this at all. Um, the other reason they hated tax collectors was who took those positions? Jews. Jews were given these positions to take taxes from their own people. And, and they, they did this, and, and listen, Jerry mentioned that they're thieves, okay? And the reason they were thieves is because they would, they would charge more taxes than Rome was charging in order to, to fill up their own pockets. And, and they, would, um, they would not post regulations so that they would know what those regulations are. They would make false accusations to people in order to get more money. And, and this was just a no-no. I mean, this was just... And, and according to Jewish writings, uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud, they, they, they lump them in with thieves and murderers. Okay, so you need to see how these people are thought of. It's different than the way we... When we say tax collector, we're not thrilled about tax collectors. <laughs> but at the same time, we don't think of them the way they thought of them. And they were, they were considered traitors. 
and you are not supposed to do business, a true observant, Torah-observant Jew did not do business with Gentiles. And not only are they doing business with Gentiles, they are in the business with the Gentiles. And they were considered, according to the Mishnah, again, these are Jewish writings of their oral laws and so forth, they were considered unclean. So even though he was a Jew nationally, he would not have been an observant Jew because he was considered unclean. In fact, according to those Jewish writings, again, not scripture, but these Jewish writings of the day, um, that if you touch a tax collector, it made you unclean. Now that sounds very familiar to another guy we just talked about. Who? A couple of weeks ago. A leper. And here's the thing. With lepers, you know, they were... At least with lepers, you could say, you know, they couldn't help what happened to them. Now, there are those who said, okay, well, what sin did you commit to get leprosy? But, but you know, a tax collector, this is all choice. This is all choice. And, and I would dare even say they would rather hang around a leper in that day and time than they would a tax collector. So if that, if that helps you get an idea. And so here's this guy, Levi. This tax collector, this guy who is a traitor, who is a scoundrel. And Jesus goes up to him and he says, what? Follow me. Seriously? I mean, this is, this is the guy you want, hey, come, come on, follow me. And we would have been very offended by that. I really think we would have been very offended by that if we lived in the day. And it would have made people question, you know, well, what kind of ministry is Jesus really into here? He's going out and he's going to these people who are unclean and traitors and saying, hey, come on, be a follower of mine. It's interesting. Oh, but guess what? It gets worse. Somebody read verses 15 through 17. Okay. So, who's he hanging out with? <laughs> Tax collectors and sinners. Now, okay, Jesus calls him, but we, we, need to, we need to make sure that we know what they are. They are sinners. And the word that is used here in our Greek New Testaments is the same word used for wicked in the book of Psalms, which... Okay, you're like, well, Psalms in that Hebrew, yes, but there's the Septuagint, the LXX, as we sometimes call it. So that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And this is the Greek word they use for the wicked in Psalms. So we're not talking about people who, you know, they, they, they break Torah, you know, law and instruction of God here and there. We're talking about they live outside of it. They, they, these are people who live completely outside of this and so um, they just they were transgressors to the to the nth degree in fact I'll tell you something else about tax collectors if you were a Jew you were not to take money from them even charity because they considered their money to be dirty okay so imagine that if you're a beggar back in the day and it's a tax collector 
you would have to say, no, I can't take money from you because your money's dirty. So this, this is the kind of people. Now, what is Jesus doing for these tax collectors and sinners? What does he do for them? He's with them. He throws them a party. It's a dinner party, folks. This is, you want to you see a dinner party in, in the time of Christ? This is what it looked like. And he actually uses the phrase here of uh, reclining at table. And when you see that phrase, that means eating together. It's used four times in Mark. All four times, he's either eating with sinners or people who are diseased. And it, and it shows us, Mark is showing us the kind of people that Jesus has come to call. Now, <clears throat> yes. Okay, good point. All right, go ahead. Aha, yes, yes. Whose house? I believe it's the house Jesus associated with. with there, there's debate on that as to whether this is, is Levi's house or whether it's his house. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter because guess who the host is? It's Jesus. Regardless, it's Jesus. I think it's, it's the house Jesus stayed in. I, and I don't know, maybe. Maybe they're camped out under the big hole that now is in the, the roof. And, you know, oh, we got a skylight now. Um, I don't know. But uh, what does Jesus say to these scribes who are criticizing him? Yeah. He says, where do you expect a physician to be? Where, who do you expect them to be with? You expect them to be with the sick. Okay. Okay, Jesus, we know these are sinners. And Jesus says, look, I've come to redeem sinners. Where do you expect me to be? And I don't think they always got it, but that's, that's exactly what he's saying here. And it wasn't that Jesus had not come for all humanity, but the mission is very different from the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they believed their job was to enlighten Jesus saw his mission to redeem. And those are, those are two different things that are happening at the same time. So the grace of God is extended to the worst of sinners. Just the worst of sinners. A traitor. All right. Somebody read for us verse 18. All right, here's another question. What's it, what does it surround? What? What's it about? What's it ask him about? Fasting. Right? We've heard of fasting before. Um, now, there, there are three pillars to Judaism, okay? One was prayer. The other was giving to the poor, and the other was fasting. And these, this is what they wrote in their oral laws, and they wrote about these things quite a bit. And it's interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, you go back and read Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, I believe, is where it all began. And he starts talking about prayer and giving to the poor and fasting. And he talks about their attitude and how they get, did those things. But those were, those were the main pillars. Now, Judaism itself... Um, there was only one required fast. It was the Day of Atonement, okay? So uh, we have the Day of Atonement, and this came every year. 
And this was a requirement. In fact, we'll just put a little asterisk out here beside it because we know that's a requirement. Um, but, of course, one section of the Mishnah, this is the Jewish oral writings, they taught about three types of fasts. And we find people fasting like this through Scripture. But these were not the ones that were, thus saith the Lord. This is the requirement. And, I'm, and they're, they're not bad either. I mean, lamenting over national tragedies. We find they did this with the destruction of the temple. Uh, times of crisis, like when there's a drought or a famine or war. These were times that people fasted. Uh, Self-imposed fast, And these would have been for personal reasons, and they felt like this would be a time for fasting. Is there anything wrong with people fasting this way? No, nothing wrong with this whatsoever. Um, but what's, what's also interesting here is the question being directed about this fasting, and he mentions two different movements. What movements? They ask, well, why aren't you like who? Okay, so we've got our Jesus movement, and then you've got John's movement, right? John the baptizer, and who else? The Pharisees. So they had their own uh, kind of movement that's going on. And so they're saying, look, John and the Pharisees, they fast. So why is the Jesus movement not fasting? So it's a, it's a really interesting question um, that he brings up. Now, we don't know very much about John's movement. Uh, we know a lot more about the Pharisees and, and really um, how they kind of did a lot of things. They actually, uh, it, it was kind of came out of the revolt of... Um, of the Grecian Empire, what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. You ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Uh, every year at Hanukkah, go look up Hanukkah. This is where it comes out of. It's during that intertestament period. So the Pharisees as a group, they have been around for about 200 years. All right? Now, does anyone know what their name means, Pharisee? It means holy ones or holy one, or separated ones, okay? Uh, something else that we know about them is they believe Jewish life was the most important life. Okay, we see on the back of people's cars, you know, salt life or, or swamp life for you gator people. Um, but if they, if they had cars back then, they would have, you know, Jewish life. And they didn't believe mixing Jewish life with the Greco-Roman world. This is also one of the reasons they had such a problem with tax collectors. The other thing that they were is they were uh, Torah observant. Torah, instruction of God. What we find in Genesis through, um, through Deuteronomy. And they were, they were all about uh, what is said there. In fact, they believed that the precious instrument... Uh, the Torah was the precious instrument by which the world was created. That the Hebrew scriptures were the perfect expression of God's wisdom and will. Now, they are not a political party. At the time that 
of Jesus, Josephus, who was a, uh, a historian in the time, he tells us there were about 6,000 Pharisees. Now, that sounds like a lot, but that's only 1% of the population. However, they carried more influence than any of the other groups. And when I say other groups, I'm talking about the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots and the Herodians and everything else. And it was also believed uh, that they were the recognized successors of Torah, that they sat on Moses' seat. And, and they believed they were the only ones, get this, they were the only ones who could interpret Scripture accurately. And, and let me say this, of all the groups that we mentioned, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, everything else, the Pharisees would have been more in line with Jesus than any of the others. But here's what Jesus didn't do. He did not align himself with any of those groups. And the other thing I know is that Jesus debated and argued with that group more than any other. But it was not over Torah. It was over their traditions around the law. Things that they had made into something that was um, important. And so they became so restrictive. They played a heavy burden upon the people because they would just add laws on top of laws on top of laws. It was ridiculous. And so they... they they raised up this, these traditions that they had, even though they didn't have Scripture to back them up as far as this is what God says is required, but they made it a requirement. And what they also did is they undervalued the intent of the law. So laws are not just something that we, we deal with blindly. It is, there's an intent behind it. In other words, we say, well, why is that there? Right? I know, I think I've mentioned this before, I always chuckle about this, but in, in New Orleans, there is a law that says you cannot throw coconuts uh, off a float in a Mardi Gras parade. And it's like, what? Okay, you know why that's there. This is not about, uh, this is not about, uh, we don't want, we don't, we want to be careful, we don't want anything to happen to coconuts. We, we understand there's an intent here. That, that goes beyond, you know. So they missed the intent. And that brings us to fasting. Does anyone know how often the Pharisees fasted? Anybody know? What? No, not it. <laughs> Who said every day? If they fasted every day, what's going to happen to them? Come on now. Uh, so Mondays and Thursdays. That sounds like something I'd say. Uh, Mondays and Thursdays, they fasted twice a week. This was not a requirement. Was it a bad thing? No. But was it a required thing? And the answer to that is no. Um, now, the Day of Atonement, that fast lasted for 24 hours. These on Mondays and Thursdays, they usually went from dawn until dusk is, is the way those worked. Um, but even though it was not a requirement, what we find is that this, this fasting became a symbol, symbol of 
commitment or spirituality, whatever you want to call it there. And so, okay, it's not the Pharisees or the scribes asking about Jesus' disciples fasting. Who is it that's asking? It's the crowds. Isn't that interesting? They're the ones asking. You know why? Because it had become such a thing in, the, in that day and time that no one, no movement could be taken seriously. No leader could be taken seriously if they did not fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Okay, you see what we do with our traditions and laws? We take something even that's good and then we push it into something else. And they believed, and can we do the same thing? Well, unless they do this, you know, I don't know if I can really take them seriously. You know, if you, unless you pray this certain time a week or in this certain place or you're a part of this, this group over here that does this or that, then you're not a spiritual person. And we become accidental Pharisees at times. We really do. And I say we, because we do. So they boasted about it. Um, we're going to see this in worship today from Luke chapter 18. And one of the things, this guy goes to the temple and he prays and he said, I fast twice a week. Why? Because it was looked at as a symbol of commitment. This, this is a person who's truly spiritual. Um, so it just shows you where things had gotten to in that particular day and time. All right, let's keep going. Somebody read for us verses 22. Um, verse 19 through 22, I'm sorry. Verses 19 through 22. Flesh, wine, skins. Okay. Carlene's all about cannibalism over there. Uh, all right, so. But I guess technically they are some kind of flesh, I guess. Uh, okay. So Jesus gives three parables, right? The first one is of what? Yeah, it's a wedding feast. If you're having a wedding, this is a big festival, do you want someone coming in that, you know, is, I mean, they treat it like a wake? And we called it a wake in Alabama. I don't know what y'all call it here. But, you know, where it's like this funeral kind of procession type thing. No, you, you don't want that. And in this day and time, let me, let me tell you about their weddings, okay? Their weddings were such a major thing that they, they lasted for seven days. If you were, and that was for virgins, for those who were uh, getting remarried that were widows, it lasted three days. Maybe it's because you just, you just partied out by then. I don't know. But anyway, so you got seven days. And the people who were invited to these weddings, they had no responsibilities. You just show up. And there's food. There's wine. There's singing. There's dancing. There's people in the house. There's people out on the streets. It is just a major celebration. And Jesus says, if you're having this major celebration, you don't want a funeral director showing up for your, for your wedding. Right? I mean, this is supposed to be a joyous occasion. Now, I mentioned uh, here recently I went to my niece's wedding. 
And, and the reception was just, oh, it was a blast. There was food everywhere. There were drinks. There were people dancing. There were people singing. And then Big Al shows up. Okay, that's, that's the mascot for the University of Alabama. In case you don't know who that is, that's a big deal. Oh, man, when Big Al showed up, it just got crazy, right? It just, it's just exciting. And the last thing you would want is a bunch of people coming in that just are just gloom. And everything centered around all of these festivities. There, there was an itinerary, melancholy, Susan, uh, uh, just this melancholy. And, and there was a time that we were to do everything, eating, cutting the cake, the whole shebang. It's on, it's on the itinerary. And it's all centered around these festive times. And so Jesus is saying, listen, the bridegroom is here. It's not a time for a funeral. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. People are being forgiven. Now, there's a time to mourn, right? And Jesus says, he says, there's going to come a time when they, they will be fasting. And he says it's when the bridegroom is snatched away. He's snatched away. He's put on a cross. And they believe it's all over for a few days. And, and what's really cool is when it talks about the coming of Jesus again, it's a, it is this wedding celebration banquet. It's so awesome. But he's saying, look, Jesus is here. And if you guys will just realize it, you can be a part of this great celebration. Uh, and in the Hebrew scripture, Israel's husband and lover is, is not Jesus, but it's Yahweh. And that's important because we see here is Jesus. He walks the scene. Why is that important? Because he is God. He is the son of God who has come. He is the bridegroom. Now, this follows two other parables. One was about a new patch. So he says, all right, you got these old pair of blue jeans. Let's just put it in our terminology. You got this old pair of blue jeans, and you bought this, this patch that's never been washed, pre-shrunk, anything before, and you sew it on. The first time it goes into the washing machine and, and dried, what's going to happen? It's, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shrink the patches. It's going to tear away. It's going to tear, you know, the jeans itself. Just not a good situation. You don't put a new patch um, on, on some old pair of blue jeans. The other thing is new, um, new wine. Right? So he says, okay, you, you make this new wine, and then you put it into this wine skin, which is to be hung up for fermentation purposes. And, and what happens if you put new wine in an old wine skin? Yeah, why does it bust? Yeah, the fermentation, the gases, and it, and it expands it. Well, an old wine skin has already been stretched. Okay, it's been stretched to its limits. So if you try to put new wine into an old wine skin and hang it out, he says it, it's just going to destroy both of them. And, and so the point is that Jesus, what he's bringing is not to patch up an old system. Okay, and we see these words here in Mark, in fact, taken away and tears away. They come from the same uh, Greek root word. And then it talks about burst and destroyed. You, you see this terminology. It's just going to ruin. It's, it, there's, it's, it's an expressed kind of an ending here. 
So the new patch and the new wine, they are incompatible. So Jesus is the new patch. He is the new wine. Now, the problem is sometimes people will take this and they'll say, ah, yes, the Old Testament has been destroyed. What do, first of all, we need to figure out what we're talking about here. We're talking about these traditions of the day, the fasting, and this is what makes someone holy or unholy. Um, the other thing is, yes, there are certain aspects of the law, and we see these ceremonies and things of that sort that continue to point to Jesus, and then there, we find their fulfillment in those things, and one of those ways is the sacrificial system. The Levitical law after Jesus, the Levitical priesthood after Jesus, it is, it's obsolete. Why? Because out of that, and it kept pointing to this, Jesus becomes the great high priest. Remember us talking about that? And now Jesus becomes the one, the only and great sacrifice. Okay? So he, he is taking in those things. But when we see here, uh, what we see is that Jesus is not an attachment to the old or to the old way of doing things. And that includes not only these, um, not only, um, you know, fasting of this type, but, but it would also include the Torah. Jesus, while he um, honored Torah, well, he also, he was not bound by it. He was not bound by it. And that includes the synagogue. And that includes these, uh, these various rules and so forth that were surrounded by those things. Why? Because Jesus is the authority. Jesus honors Torah, but he will not be bound by it. And we know that because of what's going to happen next week. You're going to see it. It's powerful. And, and it's also, uh, they did not take it very well. But, uh, let me show you this with the old system. So, with this old system over here, um, you had people who were uh, clean and unclean. Uh, you had people who were pure and impure. Right? And, and you have all these things. And so this was, was made possible because Yahweh comes in this, in this presence through this sacrificial system. But he would only commune with those who are clean and pure. The, the unclean and the impure, sometimes they're even sent outside the camp. They can't even stay with the people. Jesus comes. All right, listen. What Jesus is doing is so new. Jesus comes, and he is communing with all of these. And this is blowing their minds, because only these people could commune with Jesus or with God. Jesus is throwing them parties. He's come to gather them all. He's doing something so radically different. And you can't take that system and, and, and just put a patch over it. This was a new teaching with authority. And it is, it is so powerful. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we come to you this day and we just thank you for for um, 
opening our eyes to some things, things that are tough on us. It's, it's tough on me, Father. I know it is. You know it is. And there are things, Father, that, um, that I, I, we, we try to do what's right. We try to do what you want us to do. And, and sometimes in the process, we, we end up making laws and rules and things that, that just you were not intended to make. And Father, help us as we get ready for your great celebration, your great wedding feast that is coming. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he did come. And so, Father, we, we take this with us into our worship together as a people, and we pray that our hearts and our minds are filled and ready to come before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.